Hey, when Smiley's at World Golf Village and you have a doppelganger, it's really fun to do magic tricks on a Sunday morning. I, uh, I just have one question for you. How is your bracket doing? Okay, on to good news. This year, we have been walking through the book of Colossians. And JCP, if you would put this verse for us on the screen. E, how you doing? Good? Okay, great. Good morning. Uh, Paul, in his first chapter of this letter to the Colossians, says this. And he, talking about Jesus, here's our good news. He is the head of the body, the church. That's us. It's all believers. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That phrase will be really important. We're going to talk a little bit about that this morning and the reality for us because of that. That in everything, he, meaning Jesus, might be preeminent. That Jesus would surpass everything. That Jesus would have first place in my life and in your life and in our lives. That he would have first place in the world. That he might be preeminent and he is. That's the good news this morning. If you have a Bible, open it up to Colossians chapter 2. And Jack Warner, I need you to do me a favor because uh, this week, I know this sounds weird, but I have been thinking about how unbelievable circumcision is all week long. And I need you, for me, I need you to count how many times we say the word circumcision this morning. Can you do that for me? You're, how many are you at right now? Two. Help them out, Mac. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> Colossians chapter 2 as weird as that sounds, there is unbelievable news when it comes to circumcision. We're going to look at that this morning. We're going to read this passage. Then I'm going to pray. Then we're going to walk through this piece by piece and just kind of unpack everything that's here. So, second, or, sorry, Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 15. If you have a Bible, jump in. If not, you can follow with us along on the screens. But here we go. Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses." By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would have first place in my life and in our lives today have first place in our world, you are preeminent. You are the first and the last, and Jesus, we want you to have glory. And Jesus, I pray for myself and for us that we would understand 
how we have been set free from sin, from death, and from our enemy. Because I know that if we would just believe that, rest in that, abide in that, that it would change everything about us. It would change the way we think. It would change the way we feel. It would change the things that we say. It would change the things that we do. It would change our family. It would change our church. It would change the place where we live, the place where we work. It would change everything, Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, come. And would you organize my thoughts that some of this might make sense? We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, here we go. Starting again in verse 8. See to it, Paul says. Watch, beware of, look out for. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, an empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See to it. Oftentimes, as Paul writes, he is consistently helping his readers understand that there are false teachers who are proclaiming a false gospel. And most of the time, Paul is writing specifically against one of two groups of people. The first, uh, one of the most common, is a group that got labeled the, the Judaizers. And what the Judaizers believed was that circumcision was still necessary or was necessary for salvation. And so what the Judaizers were proclaiming to anyone who would listen is, hey, listen, Jesus is good and all, but the work that he does on the cross is not sufficient. If you want to be sure, if you want to be sure that you are saved, you need to be circumcised. That Christ's work is not sufficient, you need something else. And this came out of a practice that developed between the Old Testament covenant promises and the coming of Christ that was called proselyte baptism. Proselyte just means new convert. But what the Jews, some of the Jews believed was that in order for a non-Jew, a Gentile, to become a Jew, they had to do three things. Number one, they had to profess faith in Judaism. Number two, if he was male, he had to be circumcised. And number three, they had to undergo, uh, men and women, a baptism, which signified that they are not Jewish, therefore they are unclean, therefore they are outside of the people of God. And in order to move into the family, that person then had to be baptized as a purification rite, to take a bath, to be cleansed. And the Judaizers were saying over and over again, don't listen to Paul. He wants to tell you that Christ's work on the cross is sufficient, but we're here to demonstrate and to tell you that that's not true. There is something else that needs to be done, specifically that you need to be circumcised. And so as we read through the New Testament, we see Paul constantly getting in arguments with this particular group and trying to help his readers understand, no, 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 Christ has done it all. You have been made complete. So as we read through verses 8 through 15 together, Paul is going to build evidence as to why that's actually true. 
See to it, watch out for, that's important for us, even today, to be wary of, to be aware of, that there are also false teachers, both outside and inside the church. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, for in him, the whole fullness, this is verse 9, of deity dwells bodily. The other group that Paul is constantly uh, butting heads with is a group called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics believe that Jesus was a divine being, but he was not a man. That he is divine and had this special knowledge, which he came to bring and sort of pass out to certain people, but that he was simply divine. And Paul goes again to great lengths, and we talked about this last week, over and over and over again. Paul will say, no, 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 this doctrine, Jesus' identity is incredibly important. And Paul will say over and over again that Jesus is both 100% God and 100% man. And here's why this is so important. Because if Jesus is anything less than 100% God and 100% man, then our salvation is called into question. Jesus has to be 100% God, born, begotten of the Father, born of the Holy Spirit, without sin, perfect in every way, without blemish, had to be sinless. But Jesus also had to be fully man, born of the Virgin Mary, grown up as a baby into a man, able to be tempted, to experience everything that you and I experience here on earth, lived for 33 years, Jesus had to be real flesh and real blood because the sacrifice that was required to atone for sin, for the forgiveness of sin, had to be a real blood sacrifice. And so Paul, over and over and over again, and we together have to stack hands on the fact that Jesus is one person with two natures, that he is 100% God. He's not anything less than that. And he's also 100% human, that he's not anything less than that. The whole fullness, verse 9 says, the whole fullness of deity dwells, present tense, really cool, that Jesus ascended into heaven, still has a body. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, Verse 10, here's good news. And you, those of you who are in Christ, those of you who have put your faith in Christ, and you have been filled in him. What does it mean to be filled? What's Paul talking about? Paul is saying and helping his readers understand that you lack nothing if you are in Christ when it comes to your standing and salvation before God. That in Christ, if you are in Christ, if you have faith in Christ, you are total. NIV says you have been made complete. That you lack nothing. And how do we know this to be true? Because of what it says in the second half of this verse, verse 10, who is the head, meaning Jesus, of all rule and all authority. That Jesus is the one who has all rule, all authority, all supremacy. 
And that is what we can trust in order to be confident that we have been filled in him. Paul is going to take verses 11 and 15 through 15, and he's going to go into detail about how Jesus has filled us and made us complete. You ready for this? Not ready. Okay, I'm ready. Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised. How many am I at right now? Twelve? That's a lot of circumcision. E, what's, what's, the, uh, what's the sign for circumcision? Oh, that'll work. Yep. <laughs> In him also you were circumcised. So what's the deal? What's the deal with circumcision? One of the ways in which, at Good News, in which we talk about the story of the gospel from beginning to end is using four chapters. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Just looking forward to what's coming next. Another way to understand God's history is to realize that God makes a series of covenants. And these are everlasting promises. And they start in Genesis and they proceed all the way to Jesus until they are fulfilled in Christ. But one of the things that God is helping um, his people to understand is that he makes these everlasting promises and these covenants aren't business agreements, they are relationship agreements. So God is inviting his people into a loving, personal, intimate, forgiving relationship with him. And so this covenant of circumcision was a, was a little bit cloudy at the time, but it pointed very clearly to Jesus. And we're going to jump into this in just a second. But these covenants progressively get larger and larger as they include more and more nations and people that make up God's family, and they get clearer and clearer the closer that we get to Jesus on the cross. So when Paul says in verse 11, in him also you were circumcised, he's saying to the Colossians, relax. The Judaizers are wrong. You don't need to be circumcised in the flesh. You've already been circumcised. But what's this covenant of circumcision all about? Well, in Genesis 17, God makes an everlasting promise to his people, and he makes it through the person of Abraham. I would encourage you this week to read through Genesis 17 and look at both the promises that we're going to talk about just now and the requirements of this covenant. Genesis 17, God shows up and says to Abraham, I'm going to promise you some things. You're going to be the father of many nations meaning my promise is going to include all tribes, all tongues, all countries, all nations. That's the first promise. It tells Abraham that kings would come from his line, pointing to a coming Messiah, a coming Savior. It tells Abraham that he will be his God, and not only his God, but the God of all of his offspring and future generations, that God himself, Abraham, listen up, this is my invitation to you to enter into a loving, personal, forgiving relationship with me. That promise is for you and for all your offspring. 
And finally, he says that to Abraham that he would give him a land for his possession, Canaan, this promised land. So the promise that God is making to Abraham is I'm giving you a person, me, and a place. However, Abraham also had a part in this covenant relationship with God. And this is what God tells Abraham, hey, this is your part. Still Genesis chapter 17, and it said, God says that every male will be circumcised as a sign of this covenant. Every male will be circumcised as a sign of this everlasting promise. So Abraham was circumcised, all of his family was circumcised, everybody to come is circumcised. So what's the deal with that? Well, the story of Abraham involves a son. And the son's name, if you remember, is Isaac. And God says, listen, Abraham, I want you to understand that in order for sin to be forgiven, in order for sin to be removed, blood is required. But the story of Abraham and Isaac is one in which God himself fulfills the obligations of the covenant. Because if you remember, God tells Abraham, hey, take your son Isaac, go for three days, travel to this mountain, same mountain, by the way, that Jerusalem is built on, that this happens, take your son, lay him on the altar, and sacrifice him to me. And Abraham, as crazy as it sounds, is obedient. And he lays his son Isaac on the altar, and just as he's about to plunge the knife, God says, stop. And he looks over, and in the bushes, there's a ram, a lamb. And God says, take Isaac off of the altar and put the ram on it instead. And this covenant story is one in which Abraham and his uh, people, that God's people should understand blood is necessary for the forgiveness and removal of sin, and I'm making a promise that one day I will provide the sacrifice. God says, I will provide the son. It's my own son. Myself. God provides himself as the substitute for the sacrifice. The crazy thing is people miss this because the Judaizers, the Pharisees, missed it because they thought that circumcision equals salvation. And it doesn't equal salvation. Circumcision is a sign that pointed to so much. And the crazy thing is, is all throughout the Old Testament and the New, God says over and over to his people that what they, what they need is not a circumcision of the flesh, but they need a circumcision of the heart. Look at this. Here's one of the passages. This is Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. And it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So what is the deal with a circumcision of the heart? If there's a cutting off of the flesh, what is the, what is the equivalent of the cutting off of the heart? And the answer 
is that God cuts away our old self. Our old, unbelieving, controlled by sin, not able to appreciate or understand or relate to the beauty of God, he cuts that away. That that self, that old self, has to die in order for us to be in a right relationship with God. And who's the one who circumcises the heart? The verse 6 says, and the Lord your God will do it. That I need a circumcision of heart, that you need a circumcision of heart, that the Colossians need a circumcision of heart, and God will do it. Circumcision doesn't save. It simply points to the everlasting promise that God will do it. So Paul writes, in him you also were circumcised. And then he gets specific about the circumcision that's occurred in the life of the people at Colossae because of their faith in Christ. You also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. A putting off of the body of the flesh. That old self, buried. It needs to be buried. By the circumcision of Christ. Paul's saying, God has done a miracle in your heart. He has circumcised you, cut away the old person, raised you, made you alive in Christ, made you able to respond to and believe in the promise. And how did he do it? The circumcision of Jesus. That when Jesus was on the cross, blood was shed. And God said, this is the only bloodshed that needs to take place in order for there to be forgiveness of sins forever. Finally. Permanently. That that is the circumcision of Christ that makes us complete in him. That old self needs to be buried. So Paul's going to address that, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism. Let's talk about baptism for just a second. Old Testament covenant was circumcision. As God continues to make everlasting promises with his people, covenants, he always gives them a sign. Jesus establishes a new covenant with his people his work here on the cross, and he also gives us a sign, baptism. Again, the sign and sacrament of baptism doesn't save, but it points to the work accomplished by Christ on the cross. And so the invitation, the invitation for those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, who have believed, is to be baptized. And again, that's not saying you have to be baptized in order to be saved. It's an invitation. It's a reminder. It's a sign for our benefit that all the fullness of God's promise is ours. That's what it means to be baptized. Paul says, you've been buried with him in baptism. He's going to say two things about baptism. The first, we've been buried. Okay, so what does it mean? How do I participate in the burial of Christ on the cross? Well, the first way that you and I participate in the burial of Christ 
is to recognize that the reason that Jesus went to the cross is for my sin and your sin. For our sin. That if it wasn't for our sin, this isn't necessary. Scripture says over and over again that sin equals death. So if you are in sin, you are dead. It's a cutting away. We have been circumcised. That old self has been buried with Christ. The other, the other way in which you and I participate in the burial of Christ is by recognizing that Jesus calls us to the same life that he experienced. That Jesus was really, really clear over and over again that this wasn't a surprise to his disciples when he said, hey, listen, if you believe in me and you follow me, you will suffer and you will have afflictions because that is the lifestyle of our Savior. So if you follow me, those two things are guaranteed. And I just want to be upfront and clear about that. That those who believe in and follow Christ will suffer and will experience afflictions. And as crazy as that sounds, it's actually really, really good news. Because it's only half of the verse. Paul says, having been buried with him in baptism, meaning if you've been buried, if you suffer, if you experience afflictions, then the promise for you, if you are in Christ, through faith in him, is that the second half of verse 12 is true for you too, in which you were also raised with him. This is going back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. That the promise is if you are in Christ, you have both died and you will be raised because Jesus was resurrected. And he said, as we approach Easter and get ready for this and remember this and celebrate this, that our death is not final because Christ's death was not final, that he was raised and resurrected. And his promise is, in verse 12, you will be buried with me, you have been buried with me, and you will be raised with me. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, how does this happen? Do we do anything? Verse 12 says, through faith. That all of this comes to be not on anything we do, not on anything we don't do, not on anything we earn, through faith. In the powerful working of God, right here. Through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him, meaning Jesus, from the dead. Verse 13 and you, want some more good news? And you who were dead in your trespasses, let's, let's make sure that we understand this. The gospel is not about bad people becoming good. The gospel is about dead people coming to life. There's a big difference. And you were dead in your trespasses, meaning spiritually dead, 
unable to do anything about your circumstances. And then the, this part. God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. That God makes us alive. The uh, theological term is just regeneration. That God literally puts breath in our lungs. That he brings dead people to life. And so when a person comes to faith in Christ, they are born again. They are regenerated. They go from being dead, dead to alive, alive. And when that happens, when that happens, one thing that we can be confident of is the end of verse 13, that Jesus says, you have been forgiven all of your trespasses. You have been forgiven all of your trespasses. I need to hear this. I think you need to hear this. We have been forgiven if we are in Christ, if we have believed, we have been forgiven all of our trespasses. You have been forgiven all of your trespasses. What does that mean? It means you can stop living in your past because you have been forgiven all of your trespasses. It means you can stop hiding your present from people because you have been forgiven all of your trespasses. It means you don't have to anticipate, be anxious over, worry about your future because those have been forgiven. That all of your trespasses have been forgiven. This is why I get so excited about circumcision. How many am I on, on Jack? 44. That's a record, guaranteed. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, may God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. How do we know that's true? Verse 14 tells us. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. <clears throat> having canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. The NIV translates that, Jesus canceled the written code. And it speaks to the fact that if you held debt, then your debtor, had in their possession a piece of paper in which you had to sign your name to. So you owe people some money. They had a piece of paper. I, Strider Stokes, owe Shannon Stokes $40. I have to sign my name on that piece of paper. And the imagery that Paul is giving us in verse 14 is that you and I hold a record of debt against God that it is stacked up as far as the eye can see on his desk. That everything that we've ever thought, everything we've ever done, everything that we've ever said that is out of accord with his will and purpose and commandments, that we incur a debt to God. There's this huge portfolio of papers. And what verse 14 tells us is that Jesus takes the debt on the cross. He takes that mountain of papers that we have signed our name to 
And on the cross, he declares, it is finished. He declares it paid in full. And he takes those papers off of the father's desk and he takes them to the cross and nails it there. And why do we know or how do we know that that is true? Because of what 2 Corinthians 5 teaches us. That Jesus, while on the cross, both became our sin, took our sin on him and in him. That we can trust that our debt has been paid because Jesus is both 100% God and 100% man. The only permanent acceptable sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. And that is what he has done on the cross. And so we look at this. We rest in this. We abide in this. We never depart from this. We never move away from. We smile when we think of this. That Jesus has paid it all. Going back to verse 10, that you have been made complete. That you lack nothing. Not because of anything that you've done, but everything because of what Jesus has done. He cancels the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He sets it aside, nailing it to the cross. And then finally, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, meaning Satan and his demons. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing them. Oh my gosh, that word's hard to say. Triumphing yeah, over them in him. Did I get it right? No, probably not. Okay. Jesus disarms the rulers and authorities. Smiley and I were talking about this this week, that Satan is much more like the Wizard of Oz than we think. That his projection, his persona, is much bigger than it actually is. Because on the cross, Jesus disarmed him. Satan's playbook is pretty small, and um, his tactics are to convince people that they have to be afraid of their sin and that they need to fear death. And when Jesus takes all of that and nails it to the cross, he takes away the one weapon that Satan really has against us. This fear of sin and death. Because let's remember, Satan does not send people to hell. Sin sends people to hell. And if our sin has been nailed to the cross then our enemies have been disarmed. The war is not over. Our enemy still exists. Our enemy is still capable of lying and deceiving. But our enemy has been disarmed. And just as Christ has been resurrected, just as we look forward to the day in which we will be resurrected, that same reality is true for our enemy. That one day he will be cast aside and defeated forever. Okay, so where does that leave us? JCP, if you'll put the, uh, the next slide up. Here's the reality. Here's the good news this morning. Is that Jesus frees us from the guilt, from the power, and from the penalty of our sin, 
from death and from our enemy. And so let's enjoy that together this week. A couple of thoughts. When I say amen, we're going to sing a song. Ed, what's the name of the song again? The name of the song is What He's Done. How do we enjoy our freedom from sin, death, and our enemy? Well, the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to sing together. And I want you to pay attention to the words. I want you to think about, praise God for, be thankful for, smile, cry over what Jesus has done for us. The other thing is we have God's word. I have loved, I have loved going through Colossians chapter 2 this week. One of the things that I'm going to do this week is I, I'm, I want to think about Jesus 10 times more than I think about my sin and my circumstances. And so I'm going to set an alarm on my phone that goes off every hour. I don't have a watch, otherwise I'd set that. That goes off every hour from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. And every hour when I hear that alarm, I'm going to read to myself verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And what I'm going to do is in my mind... I'm going to imagine this cross. Because the debt on this cross has been paid in full. I want to rest in that. I don't want to depart from. I want to pay attention to. I want to abide in that. I want that to shape who I am. I want that to shape what I say and think. I want it to impact my mood. I want it to impact the things that I say. We have God's word. You know the other cool thing that's going to happen this week? Is if you've been reading through the New Testament with us this year, tomorrow we read Luke 9. The first verse that we read talks about one component of how Jesus has freed us from sin, death, and our enemy. Don't read it now. Read it tomorrow. But when you get to verse 1, just like me, just say, oh my gosh. Thank you, Jesus, that you have freed me from all of this, that I am made complete in you. You know, when you hear, when you hear stories about, and rumors about World War III, when you hear stories about new COVID strains and your flesh and your enemy wants to create fear in you, the reality that none of us are getting out of here alive, when we're confronted this week about death, you can say to your flesh and to your enemy, you know what? I've already died. I have been buried with Christ. What more do I have to fear? And you can remind your enemy that Jesus has disarmed him, that he has taken away the most powerful threat that he had and that his fate is sealed. And so when you are tempted and when you are faced with how in the world 
do you think that God would allow a person like you into his family when you are tempted to think, is any of this real? I really believe this. Can I really trust this? Say to your enemy, you have been disarmed. I have been buried with Christ and I will be raised with Christ. That is my identity and that is my future. And before we leave, let me ask you this question. Is this true for your life? If you've been listening this whole time and wondering, I, there's a voice inside you that's saying, I want this. Won't you respond to God in faith? Jesus has nailed our debt to the cross. Won't you say to God, I admit that. I'm dead without you, unable to do anything about my circumstances. And I'm trusting in the person and work of Jesus on the cross. And if Jesus is this good, Jesus is this good, isn't he worth following? Isn't he worth submitting and surrendering control of your life to? And so if you've never done that, as we've talked about the everlasting promises of God, won't you in faith say yes to God's yes? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have done it all. Thank you that you have made us complete in you. Thank you that we are buried with you and raised with you and that you have circumcised our old self. That that person is dying and will one day be severed completely and totally in glory. Jesus, help us to enjoy what you've given us this week. Help us to remember and recognize and rest in the fact that you have freed us from sin, that you've freed us from death, that you've freed us from our enemy. And may that, may that truth change everything for us, for our community, and for our world. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.